I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. I want you to imagine it. The year is 1999, and the most highly anticipated movie of the year is hitting the theaters. People were waiting for weeks outside on the street to get tickets. Remember, waiting for tickets? I'm talking about Star Wars, Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Star Wars fans from all over showed up and showed out to see their favorite franchise play out on screen. The movie was a financial hit, but amongst the cast was a brand new character who ended up becoming the target of a massive, decades-long internet hate campaign. His name was Jar Jar Binks. You almost got us killed. Are you brainless? I speak. The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Now get out of here. No, no, Mr. Stay. Mr. called Jar Jar Binks. Mr. your humble servant. He's a member of the alien race called the Gungans. He stands over six feet tall with a long duck-like mouth and large floppy ears. He would be the first completely computer-generated character in a live-action film. And people hated him. The media accused Jar Jar of portraying racist stereotypes. Diehard fans simply found him corny. And the hate was so bad, he was even named the most annoying character of all time by Complex Magazine. Now, more than 20 years later, a new podcast from the TED Audio Collective is peeling back the layers of the backlash. It's called The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. It's hosted by Dylan Marin, who is famously known for sifting through the internet hate on his other podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Today, Dylan joins me to talk about this new show and unpack the years-long hate towards Jar Jar. Dylan, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So where did the idea for this series come from? You know, I, obviously, I have been mired in internet hate with conversations with people who hate me. Because after the first season, I started moderating conversations between strangers, people who got into their own online spats. And so I was always on the hunt for a good story. And Jar Jar Binks as this cultural figure was always really interesting to me. It was always something that I knew as a kid. Oh, yeah, that character was so hated and there was this big digital component to it. And wait a second, wasn't that the first like widely hated character on the Internet? Mm. And I, I kind of vaguely knew that the actor who played him had paid a big price for that. And so then when I was testing it out for a potential episode for conversations with people who hate me, I just realized that the story was so much more complex and so much thornier. I really wanted to turn it into a kind of long form story. And I pitched it to Ted. They brought Pushkin on board. And now we have the redemption of Jar Jar Binks. And the the series, like you said, it it's one of the earliest cases of 
onslaught internet hate. Mm. How did the reaction to Jar Jar Binks, you know, 24 years ago compare to the kind of vitriol we see online today? What a great question. You know, it's so funny because it's so recognizably similar. Even though people weren't on Twitter or X, as we are now calling this platform, I'm still not getting used to that. Yeah. Um, You know, it wasn't through tweets. It wasn't through social media as we know it today. You know, even though the platforms look so different, the intention is so similar. People would kind of log their dissent through websites. And I mean, like, literally, they would, like, buy a domain name. They would make that domain name catchy but also biting. And then they would make a hate page about someone, you know, which is so much more involved than, you know, just writing a tweet. But that was like what people were doing. People were talking about this on forums. You know, my producer Amy and I, we sifted through a lot um, of forums through the Wayback Machine, which is an amazing and sometimes terrifying tool that allows you to see like how we were talking back Mm. then. And the language of the internet is so recognizable. It's like, The hyperbole is there, the massive threats that are downplayed as heavy quotes here, just a joke, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it was all there. And you see this combination of a few different takes, right? One, as you said beautifully in your intro, Jar Jar is annoying. And then two, Mm -hmm. Jar Jar is offensive. And these two takes start dancing around each other in the public square to the point where they link up with each other. And you kind of can't tell one from the other, especially if you're a passerby. You know, like it it took me quite a long time to understand what the difference was. Mm -hmm. And in the series, you interview the actor behind Jar Jar on the best who bore the brunt of a lot of this hatred. Yeah. And it was so immense that it got to the point where Ahmed nearly took his own life. Mm. I'm just wondering, how did you get him to open up to even tell this very painful, life-altering story? Yeah. Ahmed is the centerpiece of the show. It just wouldn't have worked without him. I, I would have had to make a different show if he weren't on board. You have to earn your guest's trust. If someone is going to walk you through just like probably the lowest point in their entire life, they have to know that you are there for the right intentions and that you are going to tread carefully. You're going to honor what they say and that there's a purpose to what you're doing. And so I think what I tried was my interest in making this show was not to pick at old wounds or open old wounds. I really wanted to make this show because I think the story of Jar Jar Binks is the story of us. And I think sometimes it's a lot easier to see ourselves through the slanted mirror of time, you know, and if you hear about Mm. this story from long ago and you're like, hey, that reminds me of us today, but it's easier to digest because that's from 1999 and we're in the year 2023 and the heat is off of us, so to speak. Mm. 
And and we mentioned the critiques around Jar Jar's character being a racist stereotype. A lot of people thought it was akin to minstrelsy or blackface. And you touch on this series on intent versus impact. Yeah. So how did getting to know Ahmed inform the way you covered this aspect of the story? Mm. What a great question. And I just want to say no one has quite framed the question like that. So I really appreciate Mm. it. I think because, as I said, Ahmed is the centerpiece of the show, I both want to respect him, make him feel safe, but also do the due diligence of reporting on this part of the story, because it would have been a kind of egregious omission if I had ignored it. And yet at the same time, as Ahmed puts it, this was the hardest element of the backlash. So getting to know Ahmed and having him be able to narrate the creative process to me so piece by piece, step by step, it was so clear to me that there was no intention of ever making this character offensive. There wasn't even the awareness that the character could even be likened to a human being, you know? And so I think what was a far more interesting question for me to explore, rather than is Jar Jar racist or not, because again, that is in the eye of the viewer, it is instead to ask the more macro question of how could something that was so not intended to be offensive, be read as offensive. And then after exploring that, it's how do those accusations of offensiveness translate to actual harm against the actor who played the character? Mm. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by this. You also ended up speaking with the person who created one of the first Jar Jar hate websites. His name's Adam Gardner. What were your takeaways from that conversation? So much of what I learned in making conversations with people who hate me was the necessity and importance of separating between the macro and the micro. These big macro movements are made up of individual people. I think we so easily pin these huge trends, you know, backlashes on a person who we can use as a symbol of that backlash. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk to Adam because I wanted to hear what was the step-by-step of how he made his anti-Jar Jar webpage to see just how relatable it is. You know, like, this is to me what's fascinating about all this stuff is like, we prescribe these broad brushstroke things like the internet is so mean. Let's all be kinder to each other on the internet when we're in fact doing the very same behavior that we're railing against now. And so I wanted to hear from Adam, why did he make this website? How did he make this website? So that if anyone listening was possibly like, God, I I can't believe this horrible, horrible person did this thing. It's like, he was just following a trend, you know, like mm-hmm. he was, I, and, and I say this verbatim on the show, I take a pause from my interview with Adam to say to the listener, you know, perhaps you're hearing this interview and you want me to like hold him accountable, right? Hold his feet to the fire. But that is only with our 2023 lens, 
that mm. we would be asking that, right? Because we know how the story ended and we know what happened to Ahmed. Adam in 1999 was not seen as the bad guy. He was seen as this funny guy who did this funny little thing. And so I share that not to shame Adam, but to invite us to perhaps see our reflection in Adam. Doing the work that you do and creating this series, what can we do as individuals to put the brakes on all of these cycles of viral online hate? Great question. We have to release ourselves from things that certainly are not in our control, right? Flaws of the system, flaws of design. A lot of social platforms train us towards negativity. You know, like the harder we dunk on someone, the more viral we can be. I think the inherent structure of social media dehumanizes people to each other. And that is not our doing. And we are simply participants in the system. But we have to be participants because like having a digital presence is how we exist these days. So I think important to acknowledge that there are some things beyond our control. But as individuals, I do think there are some things we can do. Sometimes, and this is how pylons happen, a lot of people speak truth to power at the very same time. And one, they don't realize that the point has already been made so well by some really smart people who have made some really incisive points, and that their voice is actually not needed, and they don't see how many other people are making the same point. But I also think that, you know, even that phrase, speaking truth to power, inherently built in that is the assumption that we're punching up. I think a lot of times we think we're aiming at the system when we're criticizing the system. But so many times we end up targeting unknowingly an individual person who we've decided is the symbol of that system, which is all to say, I think it's okay and I think it is healthy to make jokes about things, to make jokes about things on platforms where those jokes could be read by millions of people can go from harmless to harmful very quickly. And I think it's important to be mindful of what circles you're sharing your quote unquote jokes with. Right. And then when it comes to constructive criticism, that I invite us to ask ourselves, has anyone made this criticism already? Is it necessary that I add my voice to this? It's like, are you aware of who you're targeting with this? And if you're if you think you're punching up, is there a way that there's going to be an individual person who pays the price for this? Because I think about the critique that Jar Jar the character got, which is that the character is a racist stereotype. And on the surface, I am one million percent on board with calling out racism on film. I think that is a noble and wonderful thing to do. But now that we look back at the story over two decades later, the person who paid the biggest price for the character being read as a racist stereotype was himself a black man. And that's where this stuff gets really dicey. So we're going to hear a clip from episode two now of the series, and it's titled Becoming Jar Jar. And in it, you talk to Ahmed about his early career, touring with Stomp, and eventually auditioning at Skywalker Ranch. Here's that clip. So 
Ahmed is nearing the end of this incredibly high-stakes job interview, and he's still in the dark on this very mysterious character that he's auditioning to play. And in walks the director of this film, the creator of the Star Wars universe, one of Ahmed's lifelong heroes. That's George Lucas. That's the dude. I, I'm, I, I have to do this audition. So I hold it together, <laughs> and George starts directing me. George is like, I want you to walk back and forth, walk faster, walk slower, a little bit more loping, a little bit more head movement, more arm movement. <laughs> and so I do that for like a good 15, 20 minutes, and then he goes, okay, do whatever you want. Mm. Right? And I was like, okay. Mm. And that's when I start kicks, spins, flips, all this stuff, right? Mm. I'm killing it. No longer on the ground, yeah. right? He changed that that day. Oh, wow. Right. He was just like, no, I don't want that anymore. I want you to stand up. So it's a very creative process. Collaborative. Even before you are officially in the role. That was the whole beauty behind Star Wars. It was so incredibly collaborative. You're in a lab. Yeah. So I go back on tour. And I didn't hear anything for, like, weeks. And I thought, well, you know, if this is it, that was great. Mm -hmm. You know, and I got to meet George Lucas, one of my heroes, and got to do this weird, crazy thing. And it was so much fun. And I was going to go to Brazil with Stomp. Like, that's it. Um, And then I get a call when I'm in Philly. Like, can you fly to London and be in this movie? And next thing you know, I'm on a plane. Ahmed arrives in England, where principal photography is set to begin. And he will be playing the role of a Gungan from the planet Naboo, Jar Jar Binks. But he's only there to play half of Jar Jar. And Ahmed can explain that a little better than I can. So, originally I was just the movements. I wasn't supposed to be the voice. Um, But when I got to London, I heard that no one was cast for the voice yet. Um, and so I told Robin, Gerlin, who's casting everything, I was like, you know, I do voices, mm-hmm. right? And she goes, you do? I say, yeah, mm-hmm. I have like I can do a bunch of voices. She was like, all right, put some voices on tape for me and I'll play it for George. And so I did. I put like maybe 10 different voices and, mm-hmm. the, and, and I played for George. And then um, the one George liked was... The one that there is now, of course, but mm-hmm. it's a voice that I used to do for my little cousins, mm. right? And mm-hmm. it would always make them laugh every time I used that voice. And so, organically made voice. Totally organically. Yeah. Nothing. There was no processing, no nothing to it. It was just like, oh, this is the voice that I use with, you know, little kids. And little kids loved it. And, and you know, Jar Jar was always supposed to be for kids. It was a kid's character. George always constantly said that. He's for the kids. You were told that explicitly. Jar Jar was a kid's. It was for the children. The kids are going to love him. And so at the table read, which was when I first met everybody, which was nerve-wracking, there was this moment where I was just like, should I do this voice or should I just read it as me? Mm Because it's uh, not Cass. I don't know. (laughs) And like... I'm, you know, Jar Jar's pretty early on. And so the pages are going by and I'm just like, I'm going to have to make a choice. Uh-huh. I'm going to be confirmed. And I, it's getting closer and closer and closer. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? And then it's like, here it comes, the next line. Oh, boy, boy. And then it comes out. And I do it. 
And what's the table reaction? They loved it. Yeah. Everybody loves it. George was like, oh, that was great. Mm. Let's just use that. With George Lucas's approval, or George, if we're on a first name basis now, Ahmed is officially now double booked as both the movements and the voice of Jar Jar Binks. And you started the yeah. process of building Jar Jar. Yeah, I, I first got body cast. And it was in that process that I finally saw what the character was going to look like. They wow. had a, a mock-up drawing of the character. And it looked close to what we know as Jar Jar yes. now. Yeah, wow. well, it looked almost exactly to what we know as Jar Jar right now. And um, I was just like, oh, uh. that guy. I get it, right? Then next thing you know, they throw me in it. I'm in a whole bunch of latex and leather and helmet, you know, and I'm Jar Jar. As principal photography gets underway, Ahmed begins working with his main co-star, Liam Neeson, who you probably know from such films as Schindler's List or the Taken series or, I don't know, The Phantom Menace. In the script, one of the imperial like troops come in and fire at mm-hmm. us right or i think it was a robot fires at us and i'm supposed to like hit the ground yeah. oh no right yeah. hit the ground and so that day i was just like mm. and so liam looks at me and he goes what's wrong and i go i just think i can do something else here you know and he was just like what and he's like i, I just think it would be like funnier if I just like jumped straight out of frame and didn't like land it on the ground jumped back in and he was like can you do that and I was like yeah and he goes come here wow. so we walk over to George right and I was just like oh <laughs> Liam Neeson is gonna be my advocate yeah, yeah, right like yeah. who's gonna say no to that dude he's um, big he's like burly he's like a man's man he's handsome pre-taken but still yeah, Liam. very much this is post Les Mis pre-taken ah right? uh, yes yes so we go up to George and he's like, George? And George is like, yeah. And he goes, Ahmed has a suggestion. And I was wow. like, oh, now during this time, I was still the kid from the South Bronx. Right. Right. I was trying not to get fired. Uh-huh. And there was a lot of imposter syndrome going on with me. Like, I was like, I don't want to, I don't belong here. Like everybody here has had, you know, things on their resume. I was like, I just came from the stomp and now I'm here. Right. And so Ahmed has a suggestion. And George is like, well, okay, what is it? The floor is his. Ahmed makes his pitch. And George is receptive. And he goes, okay, let's see it. And so we go back, we do the whole scene again, and then I do that. And he goes, that's great. And that's what ends up in the movie. Wow. So... I say to Liam, I was like, hey, man, thank you for that. And he goes, you're an artist. You're a collaborator. You're a part of this process. You have a voice. Never hold on to an idea. You're a part of this. So you had a real, like, support system on set. Yeah, it was pretty wonderful. I mean, I learned so much. You know, this was my first movie. So I, I was really trying to soak in as much as I possibly could and and try to learn as much as I possibly could on the job. And that was such a big lesson for me because it really showed me that I was valuable to this process, that I was supposed to be there. From the TED Audio Collective, that was The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. It's hosted by Dylan Marin, who produces the show with Amy Gaines McQuaid and Jacob Smith. 
It's amazing to hear this episode and how positive his experience was in making the thing that turned out to be so terrible for him. It's it's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I admire Ahmed for so many reasons, but the fact that he is still able to hold the positive memories from this experience is incredible. Well, I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of this. I'm halfway through it right now. Wow. And I encourage people to take a listen because it's it's taught me a lot. Dylan, as always, thank you so much for joining me today on Podcast Playlist. Thank you so much for having me. You know I love you all. So uh, I this is an honor. Love you right back. That was Dylan Marin. He is a TV writer, author, and podcaster. And all six episodes of his latest series, The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks, are available wherever you get your podcasts. Oftentimes when you hear a story about someone struggling with their looks, it centers on a woman's experience. For men, on the other hand, it can often be considered taboo to open up about your insecurities. Other Men Need Help is a podcast that explores the ways that masculinity affects how men move through the world and how it can hold them back. In their latest season, host Mark Pagan explores how men experience body image. Mark is here to tell me more about the show, and he joins me from New York. Mark, thank you for joining us today on Podcast Playlist. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's just start at the beginning. What inspired you to create this show? Well, I grew up on men's media. I think a lot of young boys did, but in particular, my my mother was widowed uh, when I was a teenager. I lost my father when I was moving into high school. And I think in her dismay, trying to understand how to raise an adolescent boy on her own, she did the best that she could. But sometime around my 15th birthday, she handed me my father's electric razor and a subscription to Esquire magazine says, I think this is what you need. (laughs) And um, I'm embellishing in a way, but it's actually a a true memory. And, you know, she, she really did tried to engage me as best as she could, but she was trying to look for outside sources of masculinity that could kind of come into the home. And so for X amount of decades, I I really, you know, I just became very fascinated by the way masculinity is sort of sold to men and the narratives that were told. And I got to a point in my 30s where I just felt like I was being lied to. And I just wanted to have somebody tell the truth about their experiences. This season, you explore body image. Why did you want to specifically focus on that topic? Well, to be honest, some of that was default by what became available with the pandemic. We started this season sometime in 2020, and we were pretty much limited by the recording style. But it coincided with a conversation thread that had been happening for years. There were a lot of people that opened up to me, could be friends, that would text message me to strangers, to listeners of the show saying, put on a little bit of weight. And they just like very casually say that. It's sort of like looking at me for approval, like, is it okay that I said that? You know, is there something you can say back to me that'll help me understand why I put on weight or why I lost weight or whatever it was? And I think 
the pandemic was forcing a lot of us to look at ourselves. I mean, very literally, we were all facing a public health crisis in which we were very much monitoring our bodies. And there was also just the personal observations I think a lot of us were making where it's like, I'm going to go through my camera roll and Mm. I have the time now to delete these things. I'm going to go through my Instagram profile and just like, look at these old pictures. And those old photos are very much mirrors, you know, for our contemporary selves. And so it all led to, I think, just an organic stew of why don't we just focus on an image or the idea of an image and see what that can tell us about men's relationships with their masculinity, in particular, most more often than not, with their bodies, what they're seeing, what they're feeling, and the discrepancy between what's in their heads and what they're seeing as a reality. And it's fascinating that people started to text you with these what seem to be very private admissions. Why do you think admitting to caring about how you look seems like it's still a taboo subject for many men? Well, you know, I think unfortunately there's ways in which masculinity is treated as a box. And I think conversations around how you look are spiderwebbed to that. They come from a core of emotion. And I think by saying, I see myself gaining more weight, or I see myself graying, or I see myself not being as nimble as I used to be, really, you know, you get to the deeper emotional core, it's it's often just expressing a very pure emotion of, I'm scared of dying, Hmm. or I'm scared of losing my best friend. It just ties back to an emotional core and an emotional communication that I think is limited by the way we're socialized. And when I mentioned the sort of boxiness of masculinity, there are also beautiful ways that a lot of men feel free to communicate vanity or to communicate pride or to communicate, <laughs> I'm thinking the opposite word pride right now is a bit of shame rather of, of, mm. of their bodies or other people's bodies. Like I've had so many men talk about, well, it's okay to talk about another man's facial hair. It's okay to actually touch it. It's okay to say, oh, that looks good. It's okay for me to slap my belly and go, oh, this pasta pouch here, you know, and have that as a way that you're understanding that you too can talk about maybe feeling a little bit of self-consciousness over gaining some weight recently. What I'd love to do, I think what a lot of men would like to do is, is broaden that so that we can both use more language, but as well, not just limit it to, well, I can talk about somebody's facial hair, but I can't talk about the fact that their widow's peak is really attractive Mm. or the fact that I wish I had a widow's peak like that. And I mean, on your show, you talk about this idea that masculinity is a performance. So where do our ideas about masculinity come from? You know, I think you can grow up in the most progressive of households. You can grow up in the most progressive of cities, of countries. But if you're going to school with a group of boys, if you are watching media that talks about masculinity, you're going to be exposed on a higher scale to more rigid models. I get a lot of people that say, oh, you should read this, or I saw this article. And as a cinephile in particular, I get a lot of people that say, oh, you should watch this movie. And a lot of those comments quite often are people getting in touch and saying, this movie, you should watch it because it talks about masculinity. And I don't disagree with the recommendations quite often, but my internal response, sometimes my verbal response to me to people is like, well, every movie 
is about masculinity. Hmm. Our global culture is skewed towards the narrative of men and boys. And within that, it will give very direct codes of how to be a man. And so what advice do you have for men who want to start challenging their own notions of masculinity, but they might not know where to start? It's hard to know how to say this or know how to have all of us do this step, but my quiet mission in life and whether it's through a show like other men or just my engagement with men in the world and with myself is trying to identify and work with the feeling of shame. And personally, I think the ripple effects of men and shame are the most damaging, (laughs) the most damaging things we have globally and historically and in society. And I think if if most of us can pause and at least identify that as the emotion, this is where it's coming from. I'm feeling less than. I'd say the pause point and the reflection point is just so incredibly needed from all of us. And then beyond that, it is something that I don't say in a didactic way. The next step is beyond identifying it is connecting with somebody that you feel safe to talk about it with. And the reason that I gave all that precursor is because I still have a problem with that. But I think that's the biggest challenges that most of us can take. And and most of the time we can find those people that can sit with what we think are shame, but can turn around and say, you know what? I had that same feeling too. And here's what I did, or here's what I was thinking. Well, we're going to listen to an episode from the show now. And in this episode, you address your hair loss. You also speak with a man named Danny about coming to terms with his baldness after an Adele concert. Let's take a listen now. I'm sure that most of us at various moments in our lives have felt in conflict with a version of our projected self, our thinner or bigger or taller or younger self, and the starkness found in our photographed reality. And when faced with that reality, we've all asked ourselves, is that what I really look like? It was our anniversary last weekend, and I was chatting with some of my friends at work, and I showed pictures of our wedding, of like at our altar kiss. And so like, I cannot bring forth the kiss because she's taller than me. She's obviously kissing me. Like, it's not like I'm kissing her in this way. And they were like, oh, she came to you. And I was like, what do you expect? Like, I'm a short dude. When I look at the picture, if I have a belly fat, this is the first thing I look at. I was like, delete the picture and do it again. I remember taking this picture with my wife, right? And I saw the picture. And I was not happy with how I looked. Like, I knew I was gaining weight because I could feel it. But, like, you know, it was the first time I had really actually seen it. A year and a half ago, it was a picture from the side. I didn't recognize myself. I did not know who that man was. It was a pretty intense moment of, like, wow, I know who I am. And that's not how I see myself. I'm quite conscious with how I look. That's why I don't take a lot of selfies. Particularly because I'm quite um, insecure with my bubble chin. (laughs) For me, there's something about glasses where there's a protective element to having my glasses on because I feel like it's just a little bit of a barrier between, you know, my internal scared self and the 
version of myself that I want to show in a photo to other people. So when I have my glasses off in a photo, I'm sort of focused on, oh, the bag's under my eyes, or maybe you can see unibrow hair in between my eyebrows. From Danny's front-only mantra to putting on our glasses to the sucking in our guts when the camera comes out, there are moves we make to control how the world sees us. But I suspect there's one picture that caught you without your glasses, or from the back. Quick snapshot at a murderous angle that may have changed your life. For Danny, it was when he saw Adele. And for me, I was painting a fence. When I was in my mid-twenties, I was working with a bunch of volunteers at an education nonprofit. Someone took a picture of a bunch of us painting a school gate, all of us sort of in the middle of this activity. And yes, this was back in my day. So I only first saw the photo when someone printed it out and taped it up on the wall. The angle of the shot captured me from the back. At the time, I knew I was losing my hair, but I didn't know I was losing my hair. There it was, massive recession and the beginning of a bald spot in the back of my head. I saw the picture and an icy chill ran through my body. And then I immediately walked over to the room of this young woman who I knew had a crush on me and asked if she wanted to make out. And we did. What's funny is I don't even know if this picture even exists anymore. I don't own it. And it was a photo so unremarkable in its banality that I wouldn't be surprised if it got tossed at some point. But this one picture has stayed with me for close to 20 years now. It stayed with me not only because of my program response, it was also because I had a girlfriend at the time, back home. I don't remember doing anything like that ever before, but it was like I was running on some automatic system. I looked at a photo of myself and saw a future I didn't want, so I decided to get some and feel virile all at the cost of being a good partner. I've thought about this a lot over the years, about what happened, and for sure, a bruised ego and self-esteem were in the mix. But that wasn't enough for me to run and make out with someone. Why was this photo so threatening? What illusion was it taking away from me? The answer was time. I felt I had more time. Even though I knew I was losing hair, I could avoid it. Yes, even when looking in the mirror. Because the mirror is like a casino in Las Vegas. There are no clocks. You don't have a sense of time passing. But the photo, evidence that I was balding, showed me that time was not limitless. So the big question... I've come to face, and all of us do, when we see our own back-of-the-head photo, is how do we stop time or face it? Which brings me back to Danny. Oh, when I was a kid, I was told my hair would last forever, and then it didn't, and then my roommate showed me this video, and I asked her not to post it. But then Danny decided to stop fighting time, and instead he gave into a different sort of pride evidence of his eventual proximity to a pop star. I wasn't going to share a video with Adele, this awesome, like truly once in a lifetime cool thing. And so that was sort of the 
aha of acceptance. If you didn't catch it, that's a really quick recap of Danny explaining his ultimate decision, probably the right one, of letting the world see his shiny, beautiful head. He let his Yasmin tag him in the photo. It was like this serious reckoning in the course of a day of like, well, I want to share the picture, you know, but I don't want to show the back of my But then having these sort of obvious epiphanies of Danny, who's going to be surprised by this? Everyone who's known you your entire adult life and who knows you now has seen you from angles other than like the 30 degrees that encompass the front and like slight lateral views. Even if they are surprised, what's the judgment going to be? So I said, yeah, go ahead, share it. And I don't think a single person thought a thing of it, except how cool. That was a clip from Other Men Need Help. It's hosted by Mark Pagan. Mark, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today in this really thoughtful, beautiful conversation. Thank you. I'm so appreciative of the work that you all do to get to know what I should be listening to and and to hear your advocacy of it. And I always love to be able to have these conversations. So I, I really appreciate having the chance. Thanks. Thank you. That was Mark Pagan, the host of the independent podcast, Other Men Need Help. Their team includes Ben Goldberg, Caitlin May Burke, Rebecca Seidel, Navani Otero, Shanice Tyndall, Bay Wang, and Tuck Woodstock. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love reality dating shows but tire of the obsession with marriage? A new show called Hang Up is putting an inclusive spin on the reality dating genre. This season, the star of the show is matched with six prospective love interests. They go on dates over the phone and never see each other. After the dates, the star chooses one person to hang up on and eliminate from the show. The star of this season has chosen to go by the name of Maxine. She's looking for someone who's a great communicator, funny, and a little snarky. Her deal breakers are Harry Potter superfans and people who chew gum. Very, very specific. So there's a bit about her. In this clip we're about to hear, host Zakia Gibbons brings Maxine and the other daters together on a call to talk about how the show will work. Here's Radiotopia's Hang Up. It's really nice to all be together for the first time because, dum dum dum, today will be our last time all together. That's because after your first dates today, Maxine will choose one caller to hang up on and eliminate from the show. But if you make it through to the end and are the final winning caller, the power will be in your hands to make the final choice. 
of either taking an all-expenses-paid vacation with Maxine or walking away from her and taking a cash prize instead of $1,000. That's a lot. I'm just now getting comfortable with the idea of there being like a price that I'm worth potentially and like what that means. Fun. This is going to be fun, you guys. Yeah. (laughs) The pressure is on. Okay, so without further ado, let's find out about this week's date. Our first date's theme is speed dial. In a lot of dating, you only have one shot to make a first impression, and this show will be no exception. You will only have seven minutes for this first date. The time starts as soon as you get on the phone and you'll be notified when your time is running low. Maxine has a spinner with all of y'all's names on it to see who will go first. So, Maxine, please spin the wheel now. Oh, Oh, there it goes. Osprey. Oh. (laughs) Ooh, Osprey is up. It's gonna be me. It's gonna be me. Let's dial in and hear a bit from each of Maxine's dates. Hi, how are you? Hey, how's it going? I'm well, thanks. And okay, so um, I guess I have like a list prepared, so I guess I don't need to even bother with like small little um, chatter that I'm doing right now. Okay, <laughs> when is the last time you sanitized your phone? Oh, probably been. A week or so, I work in a kitchen, and you know I'll get okay. I'll get some you know sauce or whatever else on my clothes, and you know I'm very cognizant about washing my hands. But I know that you know working in a kitchen, a fast-paced environment, I'm gonna forget it from time to time and touch my phone. So I try every okay, once right in on. a while to to clean my phone. Uh, so you work in a kitchen. I'm a bartender. That's cool. Um, on a scale Fire. of one to ten. How clean is your home right now? Um, my home, I would say, is probably about an eight. My room, on the other hand, uh, probably closer to a five. Um, I've got some laundry I need to do this afternoon. There's a bit of clutter on my side table. Do you have roommates? Yeah, I have uh, four roommates. Okay. I am realizing now that I should have put these in some sort of order, but I just spent, <laughs> like an hour like rattling off anything I could think of and now here <laughs> we are that. so I'm sorry just feel like don't you worry about it just fire them off in whatever order you want if they're connected if they're not I think I can, okay. I can handle it let's keep doing it have you ever been to therapy to Jersey to therapy oh to therapy yes yeah I went to therapy uh for the first time as a child um when my uh, parents had been separated for a bit. And then, uh, you know, over the years, checked back in. So would you describe yourself as, like, emotionally intelligent? I would, yeah. I, I definitely, like, in an, a relationship, appreciate, like, communication, open, nuanced dialogue, and really trying to understand somebody's feelings and where they're coming from, whether or not if that's informed by trauma or anything like that. So I, I, I would like to think I'm fairly emotionally intelligent 10 seconds okay well thank you osprey that was informative one date down five to go 
And I might just have to start using Jersey as code for therapy now. All right. Hi. Hi, how are I'm you? In. Good. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Um, how close and warm is your family? I have a big, fat Italian family, basically. So we're actually super, super close. I'm one of four just within my family. And then my mom was like one of five. So we all get together and like have a lot of fun when we're all together. There's no like family drama or anything like that. Yeah, with all that being said, we're definitely really close. Okay, right on. So how do you feel about roller coasters? So used to be deathly afraid of them, <laughs> like so badly because I was like emotionally scarred by the Scooby-Doo ride and was crying by the end of it and didn't get back on a roller coaster until I was probably like 15 or 16 years old. And now I love it. I love making a fun day out of like a Wednesday or a Thursday or something. Just like take the day off, go have like a random fun day. You don't have to wait for the weekend. It's like playing hooky from school back when you were a kid. Okay, right on. If you're watching TV with someone, is it appropriate to start watching a video with sound on your phone? Ooh, that is such a debatable topic because it really depends. A, the volume can't be over like two if you do do it. And B, I feel like you have to share if you are going to watch it. But if you're just going to sit there and scroll through TikTok on like 10, that is a big no for me. Okay. That is good to know. Well, it was really nice talking to you, Kai. Yeah, it was really Thank nice you. to talk to you too, Maxine. Yeah, have a good one. Um, if you're on TikTok while we're watching TV, no need to share with me because you won't be around too long. Let's see who's next. I know, yeah. Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Okay. So I am, I'm supposed to like ask you questions from this list, but honestly, like the idea of regimented fun with your friends and this giant, um, wall of board games has me like really excited so i want you to tell me a little bit about the last board game night you had with your friends please um yeah so the last one i had was actually last weekend um i live in this great building that has um this beautiful view and the point is uh we always do it at, at my place because we have all the space and everything um and because of all the hype uh we ended up having like eight people so we ended up doing something like a party game um and we played code names <laughs> i don't know what that is oh okay okay so you and i are on a team okay maxine and, okay, Char I see and uh charlie yeah maxine and charlie yeah and, um, he talked about this game for way too long so we're gonna skip all that you might say beak and then we would just go oh well you know eagles ospreys and birds have beaks and so we would pick okay I'm, I'm sorry i've taken us so far off track and we have such a limited amount of time but this is like a conversation yeah. i would like to pick up later um yes okay i feel like i have to ask <laughs> you like a more serious one 
now okay, no, make up for how yeah. much we just talked about board games. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how emotionally intelligent are you? Um, gosh, that's a tough one. Maybe like a six or a seven. Um, I do take a lot of time to reflect on how I think and feel about things, and then um, kind of connecting with people. My job has a lot of connecting with people as well. So, um, what do you I, do for work? I can't be terrible at it. I'm a dentist. You're a dentist. Okay. I am a dentist. Yeah. That's um, so funny. Okay. So how do you feel about chewing gum? This is actually on the list. I like chewing gum a lot. <laughs> okay. I chew gum all the, I even chew gum when I'm filling teeth, when I'm drilling and filling. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's like blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like I don't even really know how to respond to that. I feel like I just learned so much. Uh, that's um, probably that good. <laughs> uh, I'm just processing. Well, okay, side question. What kind of gum do you like to chew? I hate gum. I hate chewing gum. I think it's disgusting and awful. Youch. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes it any better... Um, I mean, I don't chew that much gum. I chew gum mainly because I'm in a chair focusing on doing fillings for like two hour blocks at a time. And it just kind of. I mean, you're the professional. You don't have to justify your behavior to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I gotta, I gotta, what, what if my boss hears this or anything? <laughs> oh, man. Gotta, okay. Gotta justify myself. Oh. Uh oh, Maxine. Looks like you've stumbled head first into a major hang up. Maxine, you got to go with the dentist. The amount of money he's going to make in his lifetime, you guys can get therapists and work on the chewing gum thing, like, obviously. Uh, from PRX and Radiotopia, that was Hang Up. It's created by Caitlin Pierce and hosted by Zakia Gibbons, with story editing and sound design from Ben Montoya. Those were a few shows that we've been loving lately. If you like what you heard today and you want to listen to more, you can check out each show on our website at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. We're going to share links there and info on all the shows we played today. So check it out. And if there's a podcast you'd like us to listen to, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email. We're at podcast playlist at cbc.ca. And you can also find us on Facebook at podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Julian Uzielli and Caleb Buys, with technical support from Laura Antonelli and Emily Caravazio. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen and and I'm going to go rewatch The Phantom Menace. Take care. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.